Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. So we're going to try this again. Hopefully this is working this time. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Um, For Easter, we're taking a break from our series, Looking into the Book of Hebrews. Uh, This Resurrection Sunday, we're going to take a look into the title that Jesus most often used for himself. There are lots of different uh, titles for Jesus in the Bible, and throughout history, lots of different people have called Jesus lots of different things. Um, But what was the title that Jesus used most often for himself? So we're going to look at that this morning. Uh, We're going to be in Luke 24, verses 1 through 8, and the title of this sermon and the title that Jesus most often used for himself is The Son of Man. And so the main idea here is that the Son of Man atoned for the Son of a Man. And this text is broken down into three parts. There's arriving at the tomb. Uh, The second part is he has risen. And then the final part is the Son of Man. We're going to dig down into that title to see what that means. So I'm going to go ahead and pray again, and we'll, uh, we'll dig into this text. Heavenly Father, Lord, as uh, we open up your word, we praise you for the truth in your word. We praise you because of who you are, that you are a loving and forgiving God. We thank you that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins, and we thank you that he was resurrected in victory over sin and death and, and justification for our sins. So God, as we open up your word, we pray that you will show us who you are and help us to align our lives with your will for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, now this is our, for you guys on YouTube, this is our second time going through this. Hopefully it's working right. So we're going to go ahead right into here, into Luke 24, starting in verse 1. Uh, James, could you click on the presentation for me? There we go. All right, starting in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone, rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Uh, it says they came into the tomb, all right? Quiz again for you guys here in the building, all right? Um, since it's such an easy question, I want to ask you, why did they go to the tomb? To take spices and prepare the body. To find Jesus, to take spices and prepare the body, right? So Jesus was crucified on the cross, and they buried his body in the tomb. How did Jesus, who was innocent, end up on the cross? The crowd demanded it. The crowd demanded it? Who should have been there? Barabbas should have been there. So last week we looked at Barabbas, whose name literally means the son of a man. We saw that Barabbas represents any of us, and he's in this story to show us just that point. See, Barabbas was a murderous rebel who, according to Roman law, deserved crucifixion for attempting to lead a coup against the Roman government. And instead, Jesus, who was innocent, was crucified in his place, and Barabbas was set free. See, you and I, we're guilty, just like Barabbas. And we can be spared from the punishment that we deserve and set free from our imprisonment. We can be spared and set free because Jesus is willing to take our place. He has already taken our place. He's taken our punishment on the cross and redeemed us from our slavery to sin. Barabbas was released and Jesus was crucified in his place. Barabbas, whose name means the son of a man, uh could be anybody. But Jesus had to be somebody special in order to take his place. Jesus had to be somebody even more special to take all of our places. Now, what was it that made Jesus so special? We'll get into that in a little bit. So Jesus was crucified, and then they buried him in a tomb, and the women go, but it says they did not find 
the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, there are several times this morning that I feel like I'm stating the obvious, but when you put a dead body somewhere, you expect it to stay there and to be there when you go back to find it again. We read at the end of chapter 23 that these women watched when Jesus' body was placed in the tomb. They knew where he was supposed to be. They watched Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea when they placed that body in the tomb. So this is not simply a case of a lost body because they knew where it was supposed to be, but it wasn't there. Now, I would think they would be very confused. I think any of us in that situation would be very confused. And if we keep reading, we see exactly that. It says, while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes, as if they weren't confused enough. Uh, two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Now it says they were perplexed about this. This shows us something very important. It's very obvious. And so since it's so obvious, I think it gets overlooked a lot, but it is still very important. If these women were ready to do the typical burial preparations, it means they were expecting that Jesus' body was going to decay. If they're expecting Jesus' body to decay, they were not expecting him to be resurrected. They were expecting him to stay dead. If they were expecting him to stay dead, then they didn't really understand Jesus' teachings. They didn't really understand what Jesus was telling them. Now, I think they believed Jesus. I think they believed what Jesus told them, and they believed what Jesus taught them. I think they had faith in Jesus, but they didn't have a full understanding of him. We didn't have a full understanding of what his teachings meant or what his mission was. We'll see this point come up again later. It said, uh, the, the angels ask, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Now, looking to last week, we saw that Jesus must have been somebody special to take Barabbas's place and to take our place on the cross. Now we see again that Jesus is somebody special because he was tortured and killed on the cross, but he's come back to life. The angels are saying that he's alive. Now, are the angels confused? Right? They, they have to be confused, right? Because you put a dead body somewhere, you expect it to stay there, and now the dead body's gone. They say, no, nah, he's not dead, he's alive. Were the angels confused? They thought, well, maybe he wasn't dead to begin with. Now, the Romans were really good at execution. They had, there was no doubt that Jesus was dead. So these angels, they're not confused, but they know the whole truth. So they say, he is not here, but he has risen. They're not saying that Jesus wasn't dead. They're confirming the fact that he was dead, but they're saying that he is no longer dead. He has risen means that Jesus was dead, but he's not anymore. Jesus has raised from the death, from the dead. He has took on death and won. He looked at death and said, you won't defeat me. You will surrender to my will. Jesus was dead, but he has risen, defeating death and conquering the grave. Death has no hold over him. Who is this man? This, this Jesus, he, he must have been somebody very special to take our place, to take our guilt and give us his righteousness. He must be very, very special because he was crucified, but now he is alive again. Jesus told them all along just how special he was, but they just didn't understand. These women believed in Jesus, but they were expecting to find his dead body in the tomb. They believed in Jesus, but they did not understand all that he was telling them. So the angels reminded them. Here we go. It says, Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. 
Right, so here we see that title, the Son of Man. This is a bit of an odd title, the Son of Man. So, so very close to the name of Barabbas, who was the son of a man, but so very different. Not the son of a man, but the son of man. See, different people had different understandings about who Jesus was and different expectations about what he was going to do. Some thought that he was John the Baptist. Some thought that he was Elijah or another prophet. Some thought that he was just the carpenter's son. Others said that he was this new prophet coming along. There were many, though, who believed that he was the Messiah. Some even proclaimed him as the Son of God. The books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke record 69 times where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. This title comes from a confusing vision in the seventh chapter in the book of Daniel. See, Daniel was the servant of the king of Babylon. This is an evil king ruling over an evil empire. But Daniel had this crazy dream. So he falls asleep, and he has this dream. These four hideous monsters crawling out of the sea, and each one more terrifying than, than the last. The fourth beast, the final beast, left a path of death and destruction wherever it went. And he spoke blasphemies against God. But keep reading and see what happens next. So this is after we meet these four beasts. Then Daniel says, As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head was like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. So this ancient of days, this is obviously God. Holy, righteous, just, and powerful. This is God. He serves as a contrast to these four beasts, right? These four beasts are powerful, but they are evil. God is powerful, but he is holy and righteous and just. Watch what happens next. There you go. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. So this is the fourth beast. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. So now we see this fourth beast is defeated by God. And you might be sitting there thinking, what in the world does any of this have to do with the Son of Man? Well, we'll see that part coming up next. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So here we finally get to see this Son of Man character coming into play. But this doesn't really seem to be indicating anything about death, burial, and resurrection, or crucifixion and resurrection. If anything, this is pointing to a king who's going to come in and rule after the fourth beast is destroyed. Now, there are many different expectations as to what the Messiah was going to do. If you were to walk into first century Jerusalem, you'd hear a lot of different people having a whole lot of different hopes for what this Messiah was going to do. And the Son of Man dream, this dream that we just read in Daniel, fueled a lot of those hopes. The four beasts, they thought, could represent the four empires that ruled over the Jews from the time of the exile until the New Testament era. This would be the Assyrian Empire, then the Babylonian Empire, then the Greek Empire, and then the, the Roman Empire. And then the Roman Empire, this is the most vicious and most powerful empire they had seen yet, but also the most blasphemous, blasphemous empire. So this, this seems like the Son of Man 
is coming in to destroy the Roman Empire and set up Israel as their own independent kingdom. This would explain the Jews' reactions on Palm Sunday when they welcomed Jesus in like a king. They hailed him as the king of the Jews. And then just a week later, less than a week later, they're saying, if he is the king. First it was, this is our king. And now they're saying, if he is the king. This is our king who's going to save us from the Romans. Now they're saying, if he is our king, let him bring himself down from the cross. Let him save himself. So their dreams, they had all these hopes and dreams of what the Messiah was going to do. But Jesus comes in and says, that's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm here for yet. See, that's, that's not all that the Old Testament has to say about the Son of Man. For this, we must look way back, going all the way back to Genesis 3. And this is after the, simp- the, the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, and they sinned against God. It says, so, let the, uh, so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your, be- on your belly and eat dust all the rest of your days. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, on first read through, this doesn't seem like it's talking about the son of man. We don't see those words in here. But this, the, the son of man is the seed of Eve. The seed of Adam and Eve. This is the son of man who's coming, the, the descendant of Adam and Eve. He's going to come in and destroy the serpent. But this destruction, destroying the serpent, comes at a price. In the battle where the son defeats the serpent, the son will be injured. Now this injury is Jesus' death on the cross. But this death is not final because as, as it's hinted at in this passage, it's just a minor injury. See, before the son of man could come to establish this perfect kingdom, he first needed to defeat Satan and death. Jesus defeated the power of sin on the cross Yes, he was injured, but he defeated the power of death by being raised on the third day. We also see this Son of Man title come back in the book of Revelation, when Satan is completely and finally defeated and locked away in the eternal abyss. Then the saints will reign with him. The expectation that the Son of Man prophecy was talking about first century Jerusalem and God defeating the Roman Empire, I think is a misunderstanding of that Daniel revelation. The Son of Man was not coming to merely defeat the Roman Empire. He was coming to establish a kingdom for himself. Not an earthly political kingdom, but an eternal spiritual kingdom. People who are redeemed from sin. People who are saved from their punishment. People who have been um, atoned for. That's uh, the substitutionary atonement that Jesus does. Substitutionary meaning he took our place. We were taken out of the equation, and Jesus was put into the equation. He was substituted for us. And that atonement means that he paid the price for our sins. So there's your theological word of the day, substitutionary atonement. He would be, after that, after that substitutionary atonement, he would be resurrected and at a future date return to rule over that perfect eternal kingdom. Those who have placed their faith in this Son of Man and had their sins atoned for will be citizens in this perfect kingdom and in perfect relationship with God, in perfect relationship with each other, and in perfect relationship with the rest of creation. Let's get to our application. Our application always comes from our definition of a disciple, which we get from Matthew 4.19, where Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And from that definition, we get our three indicators of a disciple, and that's knowing, being, and doing. So our no application is to know that Jesus is the Son of Man. This Son of Man who is prophesied in Daniel 7, And the Son of Man who is prophesied in the book of Revelation. 
The son of man who was prophesied way back in Genesis 3, who would defeat the effects of sin. That he will one day finally defeat Satan and his forces. The son of man who is prophesied in Revelation, who will come back, come back to establish his perfect kingdom. Jesus is the son of man who came to die in your place, the innocent for the guilty, so that you could live eternally with God. That leads us to our second point, to be atoned for. The Son of Man did not come merely to establish an earthly kingdom. He came because we needed a Savior. Each of us are sinners, guilty according to a holy God. So we are going to talk about what is atonement. So atonement is reparation required to right a wrong. It's a reparation required to right a wrong. So to make our own atonement, if we were to atone for our own sins, this would require death and eternal separation from God in hell. That's the only way that we can atone for our sins, death and eternal separation from God. But Jesus came in and was sacrificed to make atonement for us. He was sacrificed in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. Like I said, the technical term for that is substitutionary atonement. He died in our place to make atonement for our sins. Someone else making atonement for me. The son of man freed, uh, sorry, the son of a man was freed because the son of man took his punishment. And our final application, the do, is to remember Jesus' teachings. After the angels remind them, remind the women of Jesus' words, verse 8 tells us they remembered his words. This is more than just a mental recollection, though, but a belief in his teachings. They were able to believe even more now than they did before because they had a greater understanding than they did before. It's more than just a mental recollection, but an obedience to his will. We remember Jesus' teachings by living obediently to his word, by following his teachings, and by sharing the news of his life, death, and resurrection. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for all that you do for us. I thank you that you sent your son to die for our sins, that he is our substitutionary atonement. He took our place and took our punishment so that we could be redeemed from our sins, so that we could be freed from our slavery to sin, and so that we could be reconciled to you. God, we praise you for that. Lord, this morning, if there is anybody who does not know you, I pray that you will touch their hearts, that you will bring them to a greater understanding of who you are. Bring them closer to you, Lord. Help them to understand that we are all sinners and we are all in need of salvation. Lord, those of you in the building this morning who already know you as Savior, I pray that you will help us to grow closer to you and to be more obedient. As it was told about this, these women at the end of the passage, that they remembered your words. Help us to remember your words and apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're going to have a um, uh, response time. Um, you can come up to the front and pray at the cross. You can come and pray with me. Or uh, you can pray right where you're seated. But uh, please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit VictoryBaptistHopeMills.com or Facebook.com slash VBC Hope Mills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.